Good morning, brothers. Uh, welcome to Fall Bible Study, where we're studying the uh, miracles of Jesus, the signs and wonders, and finding hope in those things. Uh, whether you're watching in the morning or the afternoon, uh, we just want to continue to encourage you to um, not only watch, but to continue to meet with your groups, whether it's in person or virtually, and to enjoy the fellowship around God's Word. Um, our passage this morning is going to come from Matthew chapter 9. So you can either follow along with me on the screen or you can open a Bible if you have one. Um, we're studying the ruler's daughter and the miracle of um, her rising from the dead. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy word. It is a gift to us. It is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces and divides, even down into the thoughts and the intentions and the motivations of our hearts. So we pray that we would have eyes to see your word and ears to hear it, and then a heart to follow. We ask your blessing on this time. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, brothers, there's two miracles in this passage uh, but to see them appropriately, we actually first have to focus on the interruptions. Uh, there are four interruptions in this passage, and the whole meaning of the miracles hinges on these interruptions. Now, I, I don't like interruptions. I'm assuming you probably don't either. It's made COVID quite difficult in many ways for me in my life. Um, my pet peeve, one of them, is discourtesy. Uh, and what I mean by that is someone who typically thinks that their needs or their desires or their wants or their time is more important than someone else's. Now, of, of course, uh, you see this on the road most significantly. When I see someone cut someone else off, um, I have been known, uh, unfortunately, to say to myself in the car, get a life. Uh, which I probably shouldn't be saying out loud, but it's the truth. And I have to repent of that because it's a pretty judgmental attitude. But what I'm insinuating is your life is not more important than the other person. So wait in line. You don't have to cut to the front of the line. Uh, and so a lot of times interruptions, they, they really do serve that purpose. It's someone who thinks that whatever is on their mind or whatever question they might have comes before everyone else. Um, when I was in seminary, I actually experienced this uh, on a pretty common basis. There was always a student or two in each class who could not wait for their question to be answered. And it would drive me nuts. 
And it would drive me nuts because I would, again, the, the judgmental spirit in me would rise up and I would think, do you really think your question's that original? Or don't you know that if you'll just wait to the end, it's very likely that the professor and the pathway of the lecture is going to answer your question? Or even more judgmentally, I would think, are you trying to impress the students or stump the professor? And it's because the question itself would serve as an interruption to everyone else around them if it wasn't beneficial to ask for everyone else around them. It was almost like, I have a question, I deserve to have it answered, and I, have, I deserve to have it answered right now. It was an interruption to the learning process. And so I've always been bothered by interruptions. This passage has something similar in it. it it's going to hinge on its interruptions. There's going to be questions asked in a setting where they probably should be withheld. And so there's four in total, and I'm going to tell you what they are here at the beginning. We're going to have an interruption from the Pharisees. We're going to have an interruption from the disciples of John. We're going to have an interruption from the ruler of the synagogue whose name is Jairus. We don't know that from Matthew's account, but we do from Mark and Luke's accounts. And then there's going to be an interruption from a bleeding woman. And what I want you to know from the beginning is that uh, Jesus gives a message to the first two interruptions. And the message that he gives to the first two is exactly the truth that is displayed through the miracles of the last two. And so it's absolutely fundamental that we scoop back to understand the first two interruptions in Jesus' response so that we can properly understand the point of the miracles. Okay, in the context of our passage today in Matthew chapter 9, uh, there's a meal taking place in the home of Levi the tax collector. Uh, he's more commonly known as Matthew. Jesus has just called him from his booth. And Jesus and the disciples are invited to a meal at his house. And what takes place is uh, there's a pretty unholy guest list, okay? Um, the, the context and the uh, invitees, it, it says that there's disciples, those are Jesus' disciples, that there's tax collectors, which are Matthew's friends, and then there are what the Bible calls sinners, okay? Now, sinners in the gospel writers, uh, language, it doesn't just mean a common sinner like you or me, um, or everyone, perhaps. What, what it really means is it connotes someone who notoriously sinned, someone whose sin was obvious, someone whose sin was kind of egregious, someone whose sin was taboo, someone whose sin was more public than it was private. And so tax collector was a specific type of sinner that was especially notorious in this day. And this is why um, a tax collector would have been a, a locally homegrown native Jewish person, for the most part, who was employed by the oppressive enemy, Rome. And it wasn't just that they were employed by Rome, but they would collect taxes from their own people to give to Rome. And then on top of that, the primary way that a tax collector would become rich was by betraying his own people. He would price gouge, or you could say tax gouge. If Rome required 12% tax, they would ask for 17. And the extra 5% on the top is what they would make themselves wealthy from. 
And so when it says a tax collector, uh, these are fraudulent traitors in the eyes of the Jewish people. These are often people who are betraying their own people. And so it's no small thing that when Jesus is sitting down for a dinner party, he's with known obvious sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus is invited to attend, and Jesus is happy to attend. And this, that setting, that's where the interruptions begin to take place. And so let's start with the first one, the Pharisees. This is earlier in Matthew chapter 9. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is interruption number one. Um, The uninvited Pharisees take notice of this dinner party And they take the opportunity to interrupt with their question. Now, what's interesting is they direct the question to the disciples, but it's really an accusation against Jesus himself. And they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the underlying assumption of their question is, these people are unworthy, they're unfit, they're unclean. And you know what? Uh, Jesus isn't afraid to answer their interrupting question. Um, He responds by saying, you know what? It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I desire mercy. I desire mercy. I've come to call and to heal sinners. In the eyes of the religious world, uh, Jesus is choosing and recruiting the wrong followers. Okay, he started with fishermen, underqualified. And then he's continuing with tax collector, unworthy, unfit, unclean. And you know what? It's not really uh, too different for us in our context today. Uh, If I was going to recruit a follower for myself, or even say I was going to say I'm going to disciple someone, Um, What I would tend to do is to think of the person uh, who has the best spiritual resume around me, who's maybe slightly younger than I am, and I would recruit that person. And if I give them a little bit of encouragement and I give them a little bit of empowerment, they're going to make the biggest immediate impact. Uh, For lack of a better way of saying this, uh, I would have to make the smallest investment to reap the greatest return. But that's not how Jesus worked. Jesus would see a lump of coal and think of the diamond inside. Uh, Jesus would do the greatest of things through the least of men. And it's because of this undercurrent of mercy. And so what we, we can hear through the interruption, and we'll soon see in the miracles performed, is that those who sense their littleness, tend to be the ones, one, who receive healing, and two, experience the power of Jesus Christ in their lives. It's not necessarily always the well-educated 
But whether they're educated or not is really of little issue. What's really at the heart of the disciple that he calls to follow him is really at the heart of the disciple. And it's someone who recognizes their need for mercy. And like he tells us, he who needs be forgiven much often understands forgiveness much. Understands mercy, which is the undercurrent of the call itself. Um, Those who are more aware of their need than their righteousness are those who experience the healing and power of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We have to get to the second interruption. And it is the disciples of John. Beginning in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So almost like clockwork, uh, the second group of uninvited guests to this dinner party show up, and again, they interrupt with a question. These are the disciples of John. And this time, the question is posed to Jesus directly and comes as an accusation against the disciples. It's the exact opposite. If the first one was, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This question is, why don't your disciples fast like we do? Again, the underlying assumption is that these disciples are unworthy and they are unfit. And Jesus isn't afraid to answer their question either. And he does it in an analogical way. Okay? In essence, Jesus is he's comparing this evening meal to a wedding feast uh, whose guests are there to eat and drink in something new. Now, it, it would be silly and I would say even unnecessary to require fasting at a wedding feast. And that's really his point. Can you imagine if after the next wedding you attended, you went to the reception and there was no food and there was no drink? And when the groom arrived and the bride arrived, there was no celebration. There was sackcloth and there was fasting. It's ridiculous. It would never happen. The whole point of a wedding feast is the celebration of something new with new wine. And if you were going to fast, you certainly would at least wait until the bride and groom got in the getaway car and took off. Because now their presence has left and the assumption is as they leave, so also does the party end. And I know that's a present day representation, but it has uh, a lot of applicability to what's going on here. Uh, Jesus is telling them in this analogical way uh, that it's, it's silly to fast at a wedding feast. The groom is present. And, and these new guests are invited first to feast before they will ever be asked to fast. They're being offered new wine. And so what Jesus is really saying is, um, I've come to bring newness of life and fullness of joy. Wine often symbolizes fullness of joy. Now, let me say this. Fasting is a wonderful discipline. 
but it is difficult and it's even burdensome, especially for those who are brand new to the faith. And fasting even in itself was supposed to be a reminder of our dependence on the groom. Like I said in the example, when the bride and groom leave, the assumption is that the, the newness of wine and the fullness of joy in the celebration has gone with them. There's a sense of fasting once their presence is gone. And so when we fast, what we're really doing is we're voicing, we're showing our dependence on the groom. And we're at the same time groaning for the return of the groom. If he could only come back, it would be new wine and fullness of joy again. And in terms of more of a, a prophetic biblical fulfillment, that's exactly the picture. With the groom comes the feast. And there's a promise in Scripture that there is a time when fasting and weeping will be no more. Revelation 21 even says that when that day comes, all things will be made new. And so Jesus is saying in this small way and in this moment in time that that prophetic thing is taking place here and now because the groom is present. He's come to bring newness of life and fullness of joy to these unfit guests. Feast now, fast later, is what he's saying. And you know, these things lead us to the final two interruptions. Each is accompanied with a miracle, and it displays these beautiful truths. And I'm just going to review them briefly. One, that Jesus Christ came to call and to heal sinners regardless of their fitness. And number two, Jesus Christ came to bring newness of life and fullness of joy. And then comes the third interruption. And this is the last interruption to the meal itself. And it's the ruler. So while Jesus was saying these things to them, them being the disciples of John, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. More than uninvited guests, the next person who comes is truly an unexpected one. Uh, it's the ruler of the synagogue. Now, that would mean that he's prominent. That would likely mean that he is well-respected and known. Uh, it likely would mean that he has a position of influence. Uh, it's also possible that he would be wealthy. Um, and this man, this ruler of the synagogue, who we know his name is Jairus, so I'll refer to him as Jairus from now on. Jairus comes in and he not only interrupts, but he does so in a very undignified way. A dignified man who kneels down at the feet of Jesus. And he does it because he knows someone who's in desperate need of Jesus' healing touch. It's his daughter. He's desperate. She's at the point of death. Um, any of you who have had a sick child can empathize with this father. You know what it's like, the feeling of powerlessness, the feeling of helplessness, the feeling of hopelessness. 
of being at your wit's end, that you would do anything, you would pay anything to save the life of your child. I have sat with families in those situations. I have prayed with them, and I can tell you that those prayers are the most urgent and fervent prayers that I have ever shared praying with anyone. It's a desperate situation. And the last thing you are worried about is your own dignity. You just want to save the life of your child. And so while Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, what I'd like for you to think even maybe more so about is that he's a father. And his 12-year-old daughter is at the point of death. He's driven to the end of himself in his own power, and he kneels begging at Jesus' feet. Now, I will say this. He, um, in some way, has less faith than the centurion who just a chapter before came to Jesus begging for help in a similar fashion for the life of his servant who was sick and dying. And this centurion, who maybe understood Jesus' authority and power a little bit better, said, if you'll only speak a word, I know my servant will be healed. And Jairus comes with feeble faith, saying, Jesus, come touch my little girl. Please come lay your hand on her and she will live. Hurry, please heal my daughter. And his little faith has led him to the right person, to the right physician, who came to call and to heal sinners. And so Jesus answers this interruption too. He leaves the meal and follows the ruler, and he does something unthinkable at this point. And I want to pause because it's, it's even... Uh, at first notice, quite rude. Rather than rush to the rescue, Jesus stops and delays because of the sickness of an older woman. There's a little girl dying and he stops for an older woman. Jesus is going to allow himself to be interrupted on the way to the little girl, and it was his fault. It was his idea. The previous three interruptions, the Pharisees, the disciples of John, Jairus himself, but now this fourth and final interruption is Jesus' idea, and he delays a hurried father. I'm going to use uh, the Markin account, the account from the Gospel of Mark, because he gives more detail to this. It's not because there's any contradiction between what Matthew and Mark say when they depict this narrative with Jairus. It's simply because Mark gives more detail. So turn and let's read. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, 
your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. If this was in itself the whole deal, the healing of this woman with the bleeding disease, it would scream the message from the first interruption and the second interruption that he shows mercy to sinners. But that's not the case. You see, he stops to heal her, and in so doing, the little girl dies. And so one of the questions behind this pericope in the middle of this narrative is, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? There's a little girl that's dying. And this fourth and this final interruption, uh, it's, it's resulting in healing for the wrong person. This woman is not just an older woman. She, she's unclean. She is unfit. She is unworthy. And while Jairus came with a feebler faith, maybe, than the centurion, this woman's faith, though bold, seems more um, superstitious than anything else. If she can just touch the fringe of his garment, then she will be healed. She should not have been in public, according to Levitical law. She certainly should not be touching anyone, and there's crowds pressing around, which means she's already done things that are punishable. And then above all that, she touches a rabbi, causing him to be unclean. This whole situation is upside down. But Jesus stops to dialogue with her while the young girl dies. Why would Jesus delay for this unworthy, unfit, unclean woman? He is, through this miracle, displaying the message from the first interruption. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But don't miss this. He's also preparing Jairus for the message from the second interruption. Jesus Christ came to bring newness of life and fullness of joy. This delay, it's certainly for the benefit of the bleeding woman. He delights to show mercy to sinners. We just said that. But the heartbreaking delay is for Jairus himself. In the miraculous healing of this bleeding woman, Jairus has offered a foreshadowing of the miracle that's soon to come. Okay, and what is happening with her is soon going to happen with his daughter. He does not know it yet, but there's, there's hints. There's actually three specific ways in this passage that help us know what is to come. Okay, first, Jesus refers to this woman as daughter. In all the accounts of Jesus speaking to women in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, this is the only instance of him referring to a woman as daughter which is the exact language Jairus used when he was begging for the life of his daughter. Secondly, this woman is healed by Jesus's touch, which is the exact feeble faith request Jairus had for his daughter. If you would just touch her, she will be healed. 
And then most strikingly, and I think most interestingly, this woman's illness is mentioned to have lasted for 12 years. And that's the exact age, we know this from the Lucan account of this little girl. She's 12 years old. And so we can see that Jesus' delay is actually intentional. You see, Jairus is coming for a fever cure, but Jesus is going to give him a resurrection. And this delay that seems like malpractice, saving an older woman to sacrifice a younger child, is actually going to be the passageway through which there is newness of life and there is fullness of joy because Jesus Christ came to bring newness of life and fullness of joy. Let's see the end of the story. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. The process of mourning this little girl's death had already commenced. There's a mournful commotion uh, outside the house. There's flute players. It's almost like the memorial service has already taken place. But Jesus does the strangest thing. Uh, he, he doesn't show empathy. He doesn't show up and do what would have been appropriate in this situation with grieving family and friends, which would have been to share in their grief. He actually walks with Jairus and says something that is in some ways really insensitive, unless it's true. She's not dead. She's asleep. Now that's either going to result in an eruption of anger and rage or laughter, and the latter is what takes place. They mock him for it. She's, she's sleeping. She's dead. It's the reason for this, this funeral. It's a reason for this memorial service. The girl has died. But Jesus doesn't waver, does he? Because he knows. His meal was interrupted, and he mentioned newness of life and fullness of joy, and it's going to be found in him. And this is it. He goes into the, the dead little girl, and he takes her by the hand. And he doesn't speak to her by name. He says, Talitha kum, little girl, daughter, arise, awake. And from the power of his healing touch, death is brought to life. The miracle of all miracles from death to life in an instant by the power of Jesus' merciful hand. And so Jairus did get more than he asked for and more than he wanted. He came for a cure and he got a resurrection in fullness of joy and newness of life. And this is precisely why Jesus came. The message from the first two interruptions displayed beautifully in the miracles of the last two. Tim Keller, um, in his book, The King's Cross, I would highly recommend if you want to read a chapter on this um, miracle to go to his book. And this is a quote from it. 
precisely because of the delay, both Jairus and the woman get far more than they asked for. Jairus came to Jesus for a fever cure, not for a resurrection. When you go to Jesus for help, you get from him far more than you had in mind. But when you go to Jesus for help, you also end up giving to him far more than you expected to give. You know, there's another story similar to this one, uh, but instead of the ruler of the synagogue mourning the death of his daughter, it's two of Jesus' best friends, Mary and Martha. And they come running to him because their brother Lazarus, who was also very close to Jesus, is close to dying. And the story's similar. They say, if only you could be there, he will live. And later say, if only you had been there, he would have lived. But Jesus stays where he is for two days. He delays. While one of his best friends is dying. What are you doing, Jesus? And one of my favorite parts of that passage is when um, the girls, his best friends, come running out, specifically Martha. And Jesus, knowing the delay is intentional, that Lazarus had to die first, he says this, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And this is a thread throughout biblical history. People wanting deliverance from their present circumstances and God delaying because he had something greater planned for them in the end. And it's not because he doesn't want them to be cured or happy. It's because there's something greater and there's something more. He wants them to experience newness of life and fullness of joy. Feasting, not fasting. Dancing, not mourning. That's the desired end for him, for his people. But of course, the grave has to come first. There has to be a death in order to be a resurrection. And brothers, this is our life in Christ. We must follow where he has led. There was a cross before the grave. And so in the rhythm of the Christian life, what we live in now feels more like crucifixion, but what we not only are promised, but will experience is resurrection joy. That's why Jesus said things like this. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then the Apostle Paul's words, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. What happens to this woman and what happens to this little girl is what happens to us. We come in feeble faith for healing. We come for a cure. And Jesus not only gives us that, he gives us resurrection from the dead. And we often think of a miracle as something that God does out there or that God at one point through Jesus did to someone else. But brothers, this passage is telling us that the miracle of all miracles, resurrection from the dead into newness of life and fullness of joy is yours and mine 
through faith in Jesus Christ. That the trophy consequence of his mercy is not just that death is defeated for us, but that we will feast, not fast. I thank God for these ordained interruptions. <clears throat> In the ones today, we see the beauty of Jesus. And you know what? It's not just theology, it's practice. That's what miracles do. They take theology and they put them into reality. Because of the magnificence and the wonder of who Jesus is, only a miracle will do. It's the only reality that can display what's actually real, what's actually happening, what's actually achieved by the power of Jesus Christ. And so in closing, I want to say this, that the healing of the bleeding woman gives hope to you if you know yourself to be unworthy, unfit, and even unclean. Because Jesus Christ came to save and to heal sinners. And I know this, that the healing of Jairus' daughter gives hope to you if you are in need of newness of life. Because Jesus came not only to raise from the dead, but to tell us that we'll rise too. And with it will come newness of life and fullness of joy. Praise be to God when he interrupts our lives to move through what we desperately want in order to give us something far more glorious, what we desperately need. Let's pray. Father, help us to know more of the resurrection life. And if there's any men listening to this who have been overwhelmed by how unworthy and unfit and unclean they feel, I pray you would chase after them because that's exactly the kind of coal that you're looking for. Someone who knows their need for mercy. Help them not to be afraid, but to come to the one who came to seek and save, who delights to give mercy. We see that in no better way than in your self-sacrificial death on the cross, Lord Jesus. And Father, I, I pray too for those who maybe are not burdened by their sin, but they're, they're bored in their faith. Remind them of resurrection, that they might experience newness of life and fullness of joy in Christ. And Father, lastly, I pray for any brothers who might be in a period of delay in their lives, that they're crying out for help, but there seems to be a long period of waiting. And Father, rather than asking what they think they want, I'm going to ask for you to give them what they truly need. Move through their wants to their needs and present to them resurrection, the fullness of life that's found only in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time this morning. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to follow you. In Christ's name, amen.